In Ephesians chapter 3 today, we're going to be talking about knowing the unknowable. That sounds pretty easy. It should be no problem this morning. Well, because that task is so difficult, I thought maybe we would start with something a little more down to earth, a little more understandable, comprehensible for us. So let's talk about how big space, outer space is. But just stick with me with this, because I think it'll help illustrate how we can know about something, and yet even knowing about something still shows us how difficult it is to really comprehend that thing. We're going to start with the thing that's the closest to the earth, the moon. The moon is 238,900 miles away. That's, that's pretty far, but how long would it take to get to the moon? Well, if you take a rocket ship, it's only going to take you a few days, but I've never been on a rocket ship before. I don't know about any of you out there. So I thought about trying to make this more applicable to me. What is the fastest I've ever gone? Well, probably on an airplane. And the average speed of a commercial jet is 575 miles per hour. And so if I hop on that commercial jet and I fly to the moon, how long is it going to take me at 575 miles per hour to get to the moon? It's going to take about 17 days to get to the moon. That's a pretty long flight. I, the longest flight I've ever been on was about 12 hours, and it was uncomfortable. I would definitely want that emergency row exit for that flight. The extra leg room might be nice. Uh, I, I would not want to take a 17-day flight to the moon, but I can imagine it. I can comprehend that amount of time and that distance. So let's move out a little bit further. Not to one of the planets, but why not to the sun? So the sun is 92.96 million miles away, about 93 million miles away. So even though I wouldn't advise it, you hop on your commercial jet and you head, fly directly to the sun, how long would it take you to get there? At 575 miles per hour, it would take you 161,000 hours. That number doesn't mean a whole lot to us. So how about it would take you 6,700 days to get there, or 18 and a half years. It would take you 18 and a half years to get to the sun. Now that's reaching the limits of what I can comprehend, but I can still kind of get it, because I'm older than 18 and a half years old, so I know how long that amount of time is, but that's still a very long time to get there. Let's bump it out just, just one other place, just a little bit further. The next closest solar system to us, the closest star to us that's not our own sun. It's called Alpha Centauri, and it's only 4.37 light years away. It's not too bad. Although when you consider that it takes over four years just for light to get from there to here, you start to realize maybe it is kind of far. So light travels at about 670 million miles per hour. And so light travels 5.88 trillion miles per year. So you multiply that by 4.37 years, and you come out to Alpha Centauri is 26 trillion miles away. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really understand that number. That number is too big for me to really get how far away the next closest star is. So how long would it take to get from here to Alpha Centauri at 575 miles per hour? Well, you're making pretty good time at 5 million miles a year, but even at that speed, it would take you 5 million years to get there. 5 million years to get to the next closest star. 
at 575 miles per hour. That, I, I have no box big enough for that in my mind. I can't understand how long that is. But that's not quite fair because you're not going to fly a jet to another solar system. So I thought, what about a rocket ship? The fastest rocket ship that we've ever built, uh, it was a probe that we sent out a couple years ago, and it clocked in at 364,000 miles per hour. And at that speed, you're traveling 3 billion miles a year, it would still take you 8,000 years to get to the next nearest star. Now, I can calculate these things. I, I did the math on them. And I'm not even that good at math. That's why I became a pastor. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. I can't, I can't comprehend the, that distance of how far away the nearest star is to us. That The fastest we've ever built anything, it would still take you 8,000 years to get there. I, I, don't, I can't understand. I can't comprehend that distance or that length of time. It's, it's out of my understanding. It's inconceivable. And I know and there's some rocket scientists out there that'll tell me that, you know, there's other factors that I haven't considered, like constant acceleration, like the theory of relativity, like time dilation. And my point's still the same. I don't really get those things either. <laughs> and I, I know that time dilation exists. I don't know why it happens. And if you know why it happens, please come tell me after the service, because I'm really interested in knowing. But that's the whole idea here. We can know these things, but we can't really comprehend the vastness of it. We can't really get how big it is. And that relates to Ephesians chapter 3 today, with trying to know that which surpasses our knowledge, that goes beyond our knowledge. So let's open up to Ephesians 3, verse 14. And this is the second prayer in the book of Ephesians. And it worked out pretty well because last month I had the opportunity to preach on the first prayer in Ephesians. And we're going to see some connections between that first prayer and this second prayer. And I want to read through this right now, but would you be willing to stand up together as we read God's word? Ephesians three fourteen. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, to him, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning. God, I pray um, that according to your extravagant glory, you you would give us your immeasurable power and that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Lord, this thing that goes beyond our knowledge, I pray that you would give us a glimpse, that you would give us understanding through your Holy Spirit, that we would know something more of it today, and we would know why it's so important for us to know this and how we can step into that more. Lord, but we recognize that we can't do this on our own. No words that I say this morning will will have that impact, but God, we need you to work your mighty power in us here today. We pray that you would do that. We pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. There's a few things I want to focus on in this passage today. The first is God's extravagant glory. The second is God's extravagant power. And the third is the extravagant love that Jesus has 
for us. And so we're going to be walking through those things. But as we look at this, the beginning has these three words, for this reason. And I want to spend a moment on that. This is important because it looks back on the rest of what we've been learning in Ephesians. In fact, as Pastor Bob pointed out last week, we saw these at the beginning of chapter 3. It seems like Paul was actually about to pray this prayer at the beginning of chapter 3 before he realized there was something else he wanted to expound on a little bit more, this, the mystery of the gospel and, and his ministry to the Gentiles. But we see that this prayer comes out of, in chapter 1, our identity in Christ. And in chapter 2, this, the, that we have been reconciled. Although we were dead in our sins, we have been reconciled both to God and to each other. And now it's for that reason that Paul prays. And we start with God's extravagant glory. The first place we see this is just simply in Paul's posture of prayer. I bow my knees before the Father. He's kneeling and praying. And that's not to say that we always must bow our knees. We, we always must kneel down in order to pray. In fact, the normal way for Jews and early Christians to pray was to pray standing up. But this wasn't out of the ordinary. And what we see here, Paul is expressing this idea of worship and praise to God. He is submitting himself. He is giving reverence and praise to God by bowing his knees. So we see that, but then it says before the Father. So we see both that idea of reverence and submission to God, but also a familiarity. He calls him Father. And that wasn't a very common thing to do before Jesus told us to pray, our Father in heaven. So we get both sides of this here, this tension between that, that reverence and submission to the Almighty God, but also the familiarity we have with him as our Father. But now we back up again when he says, every, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. The whole idea here, the focus, is giving glory and praise to God because he is the God over everything. He is the creator of the whole universe. Everyone who exists owes their existence to this almighty God. We see something of God's glory in the midst of this, in this praise that Paul is giving to God. And that connects with this next phrase we're going to see. Verse 19 starts with a pivot. It's, it's a pivot phrase. So it means it connects to the last part and it also connects to the next part. It connects to the, to the glory and the power. He says this, that according to the riches of his glory. So we're talking about God's glory still. We're going to see how important that is for this next section we're going to get into in a moment. The riches of his glory. What do you think about that? Could any of you articulate, describe to me what are, what is the extent of the riches of the glory of God? I doubt it. I, I can't do that here this morning. I can't tell you the depth of the riches of God's glory. But what comes to your mind when you think of the riches of God's glory? What comes to my mind, and maybe this is a bad example, maybe I shouldn't even share it, but what comes to my mind is Scrooge McDuck. I think of DuckTales and his gigantic vault of gold piled up in the mountains. That would be the riches of Scrooge McDuck's wealth, and somehow he's able to swim in it. I don't, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think if, if we were to see a, manifest, a physical manifestation of the, glory of, of the riches of the glory of God, it would be like that, except I also recognize that it would be so much more than that. It, when we're talking about God's glory, it's so difficult to understand, to, to even talk about the glory of God. And I just want, I don't want to try to, to fully do it this morning, but give you one illustration from Scripture that we get about 
about glory and the glory of God. It's brilliant light. And I want you to think about the sun. You walk outside, there's no clouds in the sky, and you look up at the sun. And even though it's 93 million miles away, you can't even look at it directly without damaging your eyes. In fact, do you remember a few years ago when we had the eclipse? And here in Vancouver, I think we were at like 99% of an eclipse. So only 1% of the sun's light was getting, was getting past the moon. And even then, with only 1%, you still weren't supposed to look at it without special eclipse sunglasses. Even normal sunglasses, you weren't supposed to look at 1% of the sun that's 93 million miles away. That brightness of the sun is its glory. And yet it's still nothing compared to the riches of the glory of God. The riches of God's glory are extravagant, immeasurable, and incomprehensible. And it's according to the riches of his glory that Paul's praying that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. God's extravagant glory, it's according to that glory that God gives us extravagant power. And that phrase according to is actually really important. You might be tempted as you read this, and there's even translations that will do this. They'll say, out of God's glory. Out of the riches of God's glory may he grant you. But that's not quite accurate. And when you think about it, if you were just to say, out of the riches of someone's wealth, they gave you money. So think about somebody really rich, like Elon Musk. He's got a ton of money. And out of the riches of Elon Musk's wealth, he gave you $5. I mean, it speaks to the riches of his wealth. Uh, giving away $5 isn't going to hurt him at all. He's got a lot more money than that. And yet it doesn't speak to how much money he actually gives you. Because even to you, $5 isn't that much. At least, it's not what it used to be. And so, by saying according to, it's like saying with, with respect to or in measure of. That, that in respect to the riches of God's glory, when you think about how big are the riches of God's glory, compared to that, he's giving you immeasurable power. And we saw something about this immeasurable power back in chapter 1 in that first prayer. And the three things you need to know, the third thing was you need to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to God's extravagant glory, he gives us extravagant power. And as he continues on in the verse, it says, through his spirit in your inner being. God does this through the Holy Spirit. All people who believe in Jesus, who are followers of Christ, receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells them, and God tends to work through the Holy Spirit in people's lives. When God works in people's lives, he's working through the Holy Spirit, and that's what God's doing here. He's, he's giving us power according to the glory through the Holy Spirit, and then it says, in your inner being. And this is in contrast with an external manifestation of power. So God's power toward us isn't so that we could have some external power that we that we that we have towards others. This isn't like we turn into Samson and we're beating up people with the jawbone of a donkey because of God's power. This is internal. This is um, for our spiritual life, that we've been given new life in Christ and that God's power is working in us. Romans 12 says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that internal work that God is doing. That's where his power is directed in our lives, to change us from the inside out. According to God's glory, he gives us power. Why? 
Why does God do that? Well, in verse 17 here, it says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Well, we saw that God's working through the Spirit that indwells us, but now God does something else. He's highlighting this idea that Christ, that because of God's power, Christ can dwell in our hearts through faith. And this em- emphasizes that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is not just a conduit for power. It's not just a force of power working in our lives, but it's also a personal relationship with the Spirit of Jesus. That although we recognize the Holy Spirit is the one that indwells us, because of the mystery of the Trinity, we can recognize that God dwells in us. That the Spirit of Jesus, that Jesus dwells in us as well. We have been filled and we are being filled with God's presence. And we're going to see more of that at the end of the paragraph. So, According to God's glory, he's given us power that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And let's keep reading. The second half of verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love. We've got to stop there again. I apologize because it's kind of choppy, but there's just so much in each one of these phrases to unpack. We're about to get to the main point of it, and and then it'll kind of come together and you'll see more of it there. But we have to stop right here. This is almost like a parenthesis, because Paul's telling us that according to God's glory, God gives us power in order to do something. We'll see that in a moment, but he wants to remind us where our foundation is, that we've been rooted and grounded in love. The salvation that we have in Jesus because of his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, that happened because of love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15.13, Greater love has no one than this than he who lays down his life for his friends. Even in Ephesians 2, earlier in this book, verse 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, while we were still dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So this faith that we have in the death and resurrection of Jesus, um, that foundation comes from a place of love. God did all of that because he loves us. And to understand the true nature of the gospel is to understand that God has loved us. And that's why he sent his son Jesus to save us. And that's really important for where we're about to go. So I want to come back again. I keep repeating this because it, I think it's helpful. This passage can feel complicated at times. But according to God's extravagant glory, he's given us extravagant power. Verse 18. So that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's the main point of what we're talking about here. According to God's glory, he's given us power so that we would know the love of Jesus that goes beyond knowledge. The love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge. He says here that we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. And that's a reminder that this isn't just a personal journey that we take on our own, but it's necessary that we do this together. Even here as a church gathered here this morning, we're experiencing something of that. I learn something more of God's love for me when I do it with other people because I see a different facet, I see a different angle of his love in their life than I see it in my own life. And so it's necessary that we do this together. 
that we comprehend, we'd be able to have the strength to comprehend with all the believers, with all the people in the church, with all the saints. And then he says, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? Can we measure the love that Jesus has for us? And yet, do you notice something strange here? It's four-dimensional. I don't know what world you live in, but I live in a three-dimensional world, or at least I can only perceive three dimensions. And so is Paul right here, like, did he just discover the fourth dimension? Was this a brilliant scientific discovery, and now we have it in God's word for us that what the fourth dimension is? No, this is hyperbole. We're going to see that word come up in a minute. But he's saying this goes beyond what you can understand. When we talk about measuring love, I talked about it with the kids earlier. Can we get a a tape measure out and can we measure the love that Jesus has for us? And the answer is no. And yet sometimes we try to do it, like I talked with the kids. You might tell your kids, I love you this much. And parents always win that one because we've got longer arms. And then at one point, kids realize that if they open up their hands, they can say, well, I love you all the way around the world. Well, you can respond with, well, I love you to the moon. And they might come back with, well, I love you to the moon and back. But you've got a new one, parents. You can say, I love you to Alpha Centauri. And you know what? It's going to take you five million years to work that one out, so I win. We talk this way, but we don't mean physical measurements there. And that's Paul's point here, because in the very next phrase, what does he say? To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That word surpasses there is the Greek word hyperbole. That might sound familiar to you. It's where we get our English word hyperbole. Now, that's not to say that Paul is exaggerating the love of Christ, but he's saying that it goes beyond what we can understand. It goes beyond our knowledge. The same word is used in Ephesians chapter 1 in that prayer when he says the immeasurable greatness of his power, that immeasurable word. God's, not only God's love go beyond our understanding, but God's power goes beyond our understanding. We're going to see it again, a, a very similar word in verse 20, when he says that he can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. What God can do goes beyond what we can understand, what we can really know. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. But why? Why should we know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? He says right here, the last part of verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Or back to a theme that we've seen earlier. Remember, through his spirit and then that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, this idea of God indwelling us through the Holy Spirit. And apparently, what he's saying here is the more that we know the love of Christ, the more we're filled up to the full with God's presence. We're filled up to the fullness with God. And and some of that feels kind of abstract. What exactly does that mean? And yet we understand that this is God's desire is to be one with us. He wants to be close to us again. He wants us to be filled up to the full with his presence. And not only in that relationship that we have with him, but in the way that we interact with other people in the world, living out as God's messengers, as God's people working with him in the world that we live in. And that's dependent on our knowledge of the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge.
We need to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we can be filled up to the full with God. And that relates, like I said, to that new life that we have in Christ. Our foundation, our salvation comes from, comes because God loved us and so he sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. But now we have a new life in Christ where we, we, we become more like him, we grow in our likeness to Christ, and we live out the mission that he has given us. But what this is saying is that our motivation to do that and the empowerment for that transformation in our life, it comes from knowing the unknowable love that Jesus has for us. In order to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus, we need to know the unknowable love of Christ. And as we look at that, the simple reality is it's impossible. I can't know something that goes beyond knowledge. That doesn't make any sense. But these next two verses are important to us understanding that actually we can. Because, verse 20 and 21, he says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's only according to the riches of his glory that God has given us extravagant power, and it's only because of that that we can know the extravagant love of Jesus. But then you'll notice there's actually kind of a circle going on in this passage here. Or if you were to lay it out literarily, it would be kind of like a chiasm. And basically, just to make it simple, what I'm saying is we start with God's glory— And it's according to that glory then that God gives us power. And that power relates to us being filled with his presence. And then that all leads to us knowing the love of Jesus that surpasses knowledge. But then right after that, we see the reason we need to know that love is so that we would be filled with God's presence. We're back to God's presence. And that's only possible according to the power at work within us. And then that's all for the glory of God. So we see this repeating theme of God's glory, his power, his presence, and his love. And then back to his presence, his power, and his glory. And it's kind of like a circle in our lives that keeps repeating. Actually, to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, from a couple of his books, when he's talking about the new creation, he uses this phrase, further up and further in. I think about climbing a mountain. And imagine there was a path that went around this mountain all the way up to the top. And that mountain is a biblical, there's biblical imagery of that, the mountain of God where the temple is, the high place where God is. And as we're making our way up, further up and further in to God's presence up that mountain, the only way that we can do that is when we grow in the knowledge of of the love that Jesus has for us. That is the way that we enter further into his presence, that we know God more, that we're filled up to the full with God. Further up and further in. Love is powerful. That might sound cheesy, but as I've thought about this, I've thought, if I really knew how much Jesus loved me, I'd be a different person. I thought about this with my kids as well. And I have a theory, although it may be wishful thinking, that if my kids really knew how much I loved them, they might listen a little bit better. The hard part is you can't really know how much your parents love you until you become a parent yourself. And I remember discovering that after we had our first child. 
and getting a better glimpse of what my parents felt for me when I had my own kids to love. And you feel kind of bad. Like, oh, I would have probably treated my parents differently if I knew, if I understood better how much they loved me. I think this relates to marriage as well. I think there's something here that the more that a husband knows how much his wife loves him, the better he's able to love her. The more that a wife knows how much her husband loves her, the better she's able to love him. And I actually have an example for you this morning. It's actually kind of an anti-example, a bad example for my own personal life. But I think it helps illustrate how important this expressed love is and what it does in our lives. So this is something that Jill and I um, will often share with couples that we do premarital counseling with. And we found it helpful um, for a lot of couples, especially if they share some of the personality traits that Jill and I have. So Jill and I have a couple personality traits that are exactly the same, and that's not necessarily a good thing. We're both fairly non-confrontational, and we're both not very assertive. And so how that works itself out sometimes is that Jill may say or do something that causes me to feel not quite as loved by her. And maybe she didn't even mean to do it, but that's how I feel. So what do I do in that situation? Well, I should go talk to her about it and say, hey, you probably didn't even mean it this way, but this is kind of how I feel. Can we talk about it? We work it out. Everything's great. But because I'm not very confrontational, because I'm not as assertive, what do I end up doing? I withdraw take a step back. And in the sinfulness of my own mind, and I want to emphasize that in sinfulness of my own mind, I have this idea that maybe if I kind of withdraw some love for her, maybe if I don't show her as much love, maybe she'll get the picture of how I'm feeling. She'll realize that she did something wrong, and then she'll come and apologize to me. That's how it works, right, men? No, not quite. It has the opposite effect. Now she starts to feel me withdraw from her, and so then she starts to withdraw from me, and maybe you see where this is going. It's a downward spiral of anti-love. Not a very good thing to happen in your marriage. Now, gratefully, we've never hit rock bottom or anything like that. Sooner or later, we realize what's going on, and we we talk to each other, we work it out, and it's great. And And I'm thankful that over the years, we've grown a lot better about not doing that. We catch it a lot earlier when we see ourselves doing that. But I share this because it's the opposite of what's supposed to be happening. A husband and wife, the more you realize how much your wife loves you, that will cause you to then love your wife even more, and further up and further in you go. And it's a similar thing with our love of Jesus, except for his love never changes for us. But the more that I know the love of Jesus, the more I'm going to love him, the more I'm going to be like him, the more I'm going to be filled up to the full with God. And because of that, now I'm going to understand a little bit more of his love for me. And then I will love him even more, be filled up more. Do you see how the cycle goes? Further up and further in, into that relationship that we have with Jesus. But how do we do it? See, I cannot describe to you the unknowable love of Jesus. That's just impossible. But we can talk about it a little bit more. How do we actually know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? Well, we need... God's help with that. We'll talk about that in a minute, but what are some tangible things that we can do to know his love more? It's like any relationship. We need time with God, and we spend time with God in his word. We spend time with God in prayer, and we spend time with God with other people. I mentioned that earlier, together with all the saints. 
We need each other to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's going to be things about your relationship with God that I don't understand until I get to know you more. And we're here worshiping God together this morning, and and hopefully that's happening to some extent. We know God through his word, we know God in prayer, and we know him as we get to know his people. And that causes us then to know something more of the love that Jesus has for us. But there's another application that I see here. That this immeasurable love that God has for us, the more that we know about that love, the more that we're secure in that love, the better we're able to love other people. We love because he first loved us. So the more I I know the unknowable love of Jesus, the better I can love the people around me. We see this lived out in life. You think about somebody who, they may have a really difficult job, may have a really hard time at work, but if they have a loving wife, if they have a good family home, they're able to bear that. They're able to get through that and make it because of that security they have at home. But what happens when it's flipped? You could have the best job in the world, but when life at home is falling apart, what tends to happen? It tends to affect every other part of your life. And that's true as well with us when we don't know the love that Jesus has for us. I think about ice cream. My small group comes over each week. And we eat together. And so imagine that there's, there's one week where nobody in the small group brought dessert. doesn't happen very often, but sometimes. And imagine that I've got half a carton of ice cream in the freezer. Am I likely to bring that out and serve it to my small group? Let's be honest, in my own stinginess and my own selfishness, I'm not likely going to get that ice cream out because I I don't have much to go around and I really want the ice cream and so I'm probably not going to do that. But imagine if I had a whole freezer full of ice cream. It'd be no problem. I'd get the ice cream out every week and give it to them. I'd be generous because of the abundance that I have. And sometimes we have this idea in our minds that God is stingy or withholding in his love for us. And because of that, then, I only have so much love to give. And I have a hard time loving other people because I need love. And so i got to love myself, and I don't want to run out in giving to other people. And yet, how can we believe that about God when everything in his word shows us the opposite? That there is a vast storehouse of immeasurable love that God has for that, for us. And the more that I understand that, the more I can freely give of myself to others. Because I'm not going to run out of love. Because of God's immeasurable love toward me. And you know what? Not even just love, but I can give the ice cream to my small group. When I realize, even if I only have a little bit, when I realize the love that Jesus has for me, I can give freely even out of the little that I have. Because my security isn't coming for my own things, for my own happiness. It's coming from the love that Jesus has for me that will never run out. I don't have to be stingy in my love for others when I remember the vast storehouse of love that God has for me, that I can't even measure, that I can't even imagine how much Jesus loves me. This is a prayer. And it's a prayer that I often pray for other people. And I often pray this for my kids. So when I pray this for my kids, I'll often, I'll start with, it'll kind of go like this. I'll say, God, I pray that according to the riches of your glory, you would grant Michael to be strengthened with power through your spirit in his inner being. 
that Christ would dwell in his heart through faith and that him being rooted and grounded in love would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that he would be filled with all the fullness of God. And one morning as I was praying that for my kids, something struck me, something hit me. Because I was kind of feeling like, God, how are you going to make your love known to them? They're still in that beginning stage of a relationship with God. God, how are they going to understand the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? And that's when I realized that God might use me to tell them something of it. And I can tell them about the love of God that surpasses knowledge. I can tell them all that Jesus has done for them in dying on the cross for their sins and in sharing the love that God has for them from his word But it also happens when I love my kids out of the vast storehouse of love that God has for me. I show them something more of the love that Jesus has for them. I show them something of God's love when I love them from the love with which he loved me. And that's not just true about my kids. It's true about anybody. That because of the great love that Jesus has loved me with, the more I understand that, the more I know that, the better I'm able to love the people around me with that same love. And they get a glimpse, they get just a little picture of the love that God has for them when I love them out of the love that God has for me. I mentioned this early, or one of the problems with this passage is that it's it's not very tangible. How do we talk about the love of God that surpasses knowledge. That seems like an impossible feat. And that's kind of the point. This isn't something that we can do on our own, on our own power. It's something we must do together, but it's also something that God must do for us and with us. That according to God's extravagant glory, he's given us extravagant power that we might know the extravagant love that Jesus has for us. And although it seems impossible, we know that we have a great God who can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, God, we thank you. We glorify you. We praise you for how great you are, Lord, and how much you've loved us. Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning. God, I pray that according to the riches of your glory, you would grant us to be strengthened with power through your spirit in our inner being. God, I pray that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith and that we that we've we've been rooted and grounded in love, that we would have the strength to comprehend all together, Lord, with all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. Lord, I pray this morning that through the power of your Holy Spirit, according to your glory, you would help us to know a little bit more of the love that Jesus has for us. And the more that we know the love that you have for us, God, that that would cause us to love other people with that same love. That it would cause us to show other people the great love that you have for them, that you've revealed to us through your spirit.
God, please help us. Give us knowledge of that today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.